The capacity to recover quickly from difficulties. Toughness. The ability of a substance or object to spring back into shape. Resilience. This is the Black Resilience Podcast, where we have real talk about real issues in order to get to real solutions. Get ready for raw and bold conversations about everything that impacts the lives of black people in America. Black people in America. America. Everybody no more sleeping in bed. No more back to thinking, time for thinking ahead. The world has changed so very much from what it used to be. There's so much hatred, war and Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Resilience Podcast. I am Edith, the creating host of the show. Hey, this is Randy. I'm the co-host. How y'all doing today? Hello, Randy. What's happening? Everything, my man. Everything. Well, it's more than everything right now. Hey, in- the climate we're in right now, it is all about November 3rd and making f- sure we get out to vote. We're in the final stretch now. The final stretch. A little, le- little less than two weeks, a little more than two weeks, something like that? A little less than two weeks, really. Wow. Yeah. And I'm really excited about the upcoming series we're going to be doing. Oh, yeah. Tell me about it. It's going to be, um, we're going to be talking about the power of the black vote in America. Wow. Yes. Wow. That that is a needed conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know what, Randy? It's going to be a three-part series because it is so much to talk about. Mm Mm-hmm. And what I want our listeners to understand is that our vote has power. You're right. You're absolutely right. I mean, that's an understatement. I mean, the power of the black vote has has been utilized over and over again, Mm -hmm. but it's not being utilized in a consistent manner. Right, right. And for me, I want our listeners to understand that um, when we exercise our right to vote, it's more than just voting. Um, in the national elections, right? It's about getting getting involved in your local communities That's and right. taking advantage of every opportunity when it's time to go to the polls to elect local officials. Right. You know, it's about like you say, it's about engagement and accountability. Absolutely. And because those two things right there lead to voter apathy. Right. And if and if we don't do those things, we're gonna get the results that we currently do not like. Exactly. So let me break down this three-part series for you, Randy. Okay, I'm here. Part one, we're going to touch on the history of the black vote in America. Don't You got to know where you're from before you know where you can go. Right. And part two is going to talk about the black vote at a crossroad. Ooh, man, that is so true right now. And then for part three, it's all about a call to action. That's right. You've, you, you've heard everything. Now you got to do it. Right. You got to do it. And I truly believe that part of, you know, America, I should say black Americans have a very, I can't think of the word I want to use right now, but I'll just say a very fragile history as it, as it relates to voting in America. I mean, it's, it's a combination of. It's fragile, it's spotty, it's inconsistent. Yes. It's had its ups yes. and it's had its downs. Yes. Absolutely. No, it's fragile like an eggshell. Like an eggshell. You know, it, we called it black suffrage. Right. Which is just black people's right to vote in America. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much what that means. And what I found interesting was that, well, let's first start off with black men. Right. I okay. mean, the story you're about to tell, I know it. 
I know you do. I know it, but I, I want everyone to understand this was a hundred year struggle. Yes. From reconstruction up until the voting right acts of 1965. 1965. That's right. Okay. It's a hundred year struggle. And what Edith is going to share and I'll provide my commentary is all the little ups and downs, peaks and valleys that occurred over that hundred, hundred year distance. Right. Right. It was interesting because I want our listeners to know, and I'm, I'm sure you all may know this and some of you all may not know this, but Black men in this country did not earn the right to vote until after the Civil War in 1870. That's about four to five years after the war. After the war. And it was a result of the 15th Amendment. Right, right. But more importantly, that was just black men. Right, right. And and, and guess what? That was part of the Reconstruction uh, Acts. Right. And in order to get that vote, they had to have federal troops in these communities. So it was not like they could just walk to the polls. Right. They had to be protected. Right. Right. And. So think about this, Edith. Think about this. You are a black family, particularly in the South, a farmer. Mm -hmm. And I know this because I come from a family of sharecroppers. Uh, In order to keep the farm going, you have to have a large family. Right. Okay. So imagine you have households multi-generational households with 10 and 15 people, but only one or two people in the household can vote. Wow. Wow. I mean, just think about that. Yeah. So you, you might have, you might have eight adults, right? But if, if they're all women, one man, that's it. That's it. That's it. Because black women still could not vote. Wow. And then, um, however, this was not the story for white women. White women earned the right to vote in 1920. And guess what? What? Our sisters were in the back rooms doing all the heavy lifting. All the heavy lifting. For their white sisters. And they still were not invited and to the they room. St- they still was not invited. So that was the interesting part for me. I said, okay, now black women were doing a lot of the work only for them to give white women the right to vote. Right. And when white women earned the right to vote, they did not fight for the right for black women to vote. Well, you know, that's kind of like today. I mean, just think about it. Think how the white women have hijacked the woke movement. Yep. Okay. They've made it into something else. Yep. That's right. You know, how they hijack me too. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's very common. We do our thing and guess what? They hijack it from us. Yeah, absolutely. So it wasn't until the voting rights act of 1965 and we all know about the voting rights act of 1965 that Lyndon B. Johnson signed. Right. That is when black women earned the right to vote in this country. And if you guys know your history, we just lost a warrior in John Lewis. He had to almost damn near die for that to happen. For that to happen. And because of that incident on the bridge, the Edmund Pettus Bridge, bridge it actually helped accelerate the passage of the Voting Rights Act. If it right. wasn't for that event, that's right. It would have been a, probably another year or two. Right. So the history of voting for black people in this country is a serious matter. Just think about it, either. In a hundred years, from hands that could only pick cotton to now you could pick a president. 
Right, right. And that's why we need to recognize if you learn, if you get nothing else out of this podcast doing this particular series, you re, you need to recognize the importance and the power of your vote. That's right. Because it took us a long time to get here and it took some blood, sweat and tears. But we have that power and we need to use it That's and we right. need to own it and know that is our right and they cannot take it away. We, and we need to honor the people. Absolutely. I mean, when you think about Cheney, Goodman and Swartz, mm-hmm. uh, they went down the, the summer of, of voting. They lost their lives. Jimmy Lee Jackson, Jimmy 15, Lee Jackson. Years, yep. 15 years old, yeah, lost his life. Okay, so we need to understand that there were some people who had the courage to put their lives on the line right. for us to have to have a free chance, not free chance, but have our opportunity, opportunity. to participate in the political process. Right. And we owe it to them to keep that to keep running that race for right. them. So I don't want to hear voting doesn't count. Oh, I'm not going to worry about voting. I'm, that should not, not one black person in this country should utter those statements out of their mouth. So let, let's just put that. I hear this all the time. You know, my vote don't count. I want y'all to t- close your eyes and go back to uh, year 2000, Gore versus Bush. Yeah. Bush wins Florida by 537 votes. Wow. Okay. That's a small margin. All right. So that lets you know your vote matter. 1960, John F. Kennedy beat Richard Nixon by 112,000 votes. That's less than one vote per season. Yeah. Okay. Let's look at the last election, 2016. In three states, three battleground states, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, the current occupant of the White House wins by 77,000 votes. Wow. But in those cities... The capitals of those cities, Detroit, Milwaukee, and Philly, more than 200,000 blacks did not vote. Wow. Yeah. Black people, we cannot choose to not vote in this country. That's right. That's right. We can't. That is unacceptable. That's right. It's, It's not even an option. It's not debatable. It's not debatable. This is not like talking about religion or, right. or talking about health care. Voting is a fundamental right. It's your civic duty as a citizen of this country to exercise your right to vote. That's right. It's a duty, not a right. It is a duty. Yeah, absolutely. So, again, we got a lot to unpack here, but it's some really good information, and we want to continue to drop the knowledge um, for our listeners so everyone who's listening to this podcast can walk away with a lot more wisdom and knowledge around the power of the black vote in America. Because it's a serious matter. Because once you understand that, then we want you to get your plan together. That's right. Get your plan. Um, public disclosure, I voted this week. Got my plan together. My wife, my daughter, and I, and my, both my daughters, we went in, out there and voted. Mm-hmm. Period. And Georgia is one of the few states that when you early voting, the votes are counted. Yeah. Well, I already voted. I voted, I think, the first day. Okay. Yeah. But That's- I did do absentee. Okay, your vote has been counted. And I dropped it off in the official box. That's right. And for those of you who may have to do an absentee ballot, make a copy of your ballot. Make a copy of your ballot. I made a copy of my ballot. I copied the envelope with the barcode on it. I was not playing. And also, too, make sure your signature matches up with the name they have on the voter rolls. Right. If your voter rolls has your full government name, that means your middle name, Write your middle name down there, too. 
That's right. Okay. It's some serious stuff. So we have a great uh, show planned for today, but just throughout this entire series, Randy, we're going to be interviewing some awesome people. I can't wait. I'm so excited. I can't wait. And we're also going to have our co-host, our guest co-host, I should say. Okay. This particular Who's it? Who is it? Deborah Richardson. Oh, my goodness. The great Deborah Richardson. Yes. Deborah's going to be coming on and joining us um, throughout this series because she has a lot going on in this space as well. Mm -hmm. So I am just really excited about this series. I'm excited about the guests we're going to have on and just all the the information that we'll be sharing with you all because we are in the midst of one of the most powerful and important elections um, in our time. You need to vote like your, your life depends, not yeah. like your life depends, your life does depend on this. Yeah, yeah. We're okay. in a pandemic and we have a critical election coming up. That's right. Because there are going to be some decisions going to impact the next 40 to 50 years. You've already seen what's happening with the census. Right. Okay. Right. So now we got a Supreme Court justice that's going to be confirmed. Let's just call it what it is. She mm-hmm. will be confirmed. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So it's going to impact a lot of you guys. Yeah. So that's why you have to exercise your right to vote on November 3rd. And however you need to do it, based on your situation, I'm just saying just get it out there and vote. Right. And we're talking about voting up and down the ballot. That's right. Your local is- issues always start at your front door. Start voting those people that meet your needs in your local elections. That means the district attorney. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's a, that's a key one. We talk about police violence. Right. Okay. That's how you change things. The sheriffs, the dog catcher, whatever it is. Right. Vote. Exactly. All righty. Well, I'm getting pumped up. I am ready. Cause I am so looking forward to hearing what our guests have to say today. Okay. Let's get it started. All righty. You've been listening to the black resilience podcast. Real talk. Real issues. Real solutions. I am so excited. We are going to have my good friend, Deborah Richardson, as our guest co-host. Oh, wow. Wow. I mean, that's that's a coup right there. I mean, Deborah grew up in historic, the historic black community in Atlanta, Georgia, during the civil rights movement. Oh, she's a warrior. So she was in the trenches. She's a shero. Yes, yes. And she saw firsthand how the vote was the most important tool in advancing justice for blacks and other disenfranchised persons in in Georgia at that time. So um, she's also the Alonzo and Norris Herndon Human Rights Scholar in residence for uh, the Georgia State University's Honors College. Wow, you got to be smart to be in Honors College. I know. Oh, she is awesome. She's also my dear good friend, my professional confidant, coach, mentor. When I tell you, Deborah brings a wealth of experience, uh, not just through all the awesome jobs she's had in the civil and social justice space, um, but also through her work in the community. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just really, really excited yeah, to have. this is a treat. Yeah, yeah. So listeners, you all are in for a treat because Deborah, like I said, is going to be our guest co-host throughout the entire series. And, and uh, listeners, uh, grab your notebook, grab pen and paper. Uh, she's going to take you to class now, take That's you to right. school. So welcome, welcome, my good friend, Deborah Richardson. Yay. Well, thank you, Eve. And Randy, 
you know, have, have been very hospitable to me so far. I'm looking forward <laughs> to this conversation. <laughs> we are too, Deborah. So why don't you just uh, talk to us a little bit about, uh, you know, the your contributions over these years in the civil rights and social justice space. What are you doing right now? And your whole perspective on the power of the black vote in America. Oh, and if I cannot think of anything that's more important to black people than our vote. And we have seen so many examples of how just very few people can, can um, control the outcome of an election, which is so important why more than ever we all need to get out there. But people don't remember or realize that the reason of the American Civil Rights Movement was so that blacks would get the same rights as citizens as whites. And so all of the things, such as sitting at the lunch counter, riding and getting to ride on any seat you want to on the bus, all of that was a precursor to organize our community to get us on one accord so we can do that final push for the vote. And if you notice that, that was the very last civil rights uh, legislation that we really had was the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so now we're facing another historic election in so many ways, an opportunity to have the first um, African-American um, Indian woman uh, as woman, period, vice president. Right as well as regaining so many losses that we've experienced as a society and a race during this current Republican administration. I cannot think of anything more critical than by 7 p.m. on November 3rd, every person, every black person needs to have made their way to the voting book. That's, That's right. right. That's right. I agree with you wholeheartedly about that, uh, Deborah. I mean, this is a very critical election. I have not seen an election this critical in my lifetime. Right. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. And that's part of why we've gotten so lackadaisical because we felt that, oh, somebody else got there or it really doesn't have anything to do with me. My life is not going to change. Where if you see how we have over 250,000 people who have died because of a lack of public um, health policy, how we've had millions of people still unemployed. Yes. And hundreds and thousands of people being evicted during a global pandemic who have nowhere to live. I just can't imagine if, if all of that, I mean, one thing, but all of it together, that should be enough to make us just want to br- just break down the doors and get to the voting booth. Uh, you know, I agree with you, Deborah. I, right now, it, it I, to my, I just cannot believe how many people are still undecided? And I still cannot believe how many people are still very empathetic about voting. With all yeah. with all this is happening, I mean, to me, you can make it. You need to make a decision: who you're going to vote for, and vote. Right. And also, yeah, I do. Go ahead. And I also think that it's important for our listeners to to go back for a minute, if I may, and you know, talk about you know, how important it was to mobilize people at the local levels, you know, in, in, in their own communities to really get them engaged in the voting process. And I think, you know, during, you know, the 60s, you know, the 50s and the 60s, I think, um, you know, it was it was just something that we all had to do. And I, I, I like what I'm seeing right now with the younger generation but I just think that when you go to different cities, 
in other communities is just not enough of the uh, grassroots organizing and mobilization that uh, that a lot of that happened, you know, back uh, in the 60s. Right, right. You want to talk about that a little bit, Deborah? Oh, you're absolutely right. Um, the March on Washington was really the only nationwide effort of the American Civil Rights Movement. Everything else was local. It was, you know, by community, by community. It was city, you know, very few statewide. It was all communities saying that we want to stop this injustice here right now. And for instance, it was a group of college students at the Atlanta University System who organized the student movement that got to get downtown Atlanta stores um, desegregated. Right. And wow. not everyone, yeah, and not everyone agreed that they were doing the right thing because they felt it was going to be a quite backlash. But these students were resolute. And because of their efforts, they in Nashville organized and, and other communities organized. Um, it was the Green Four. Greensboro students at North Carolina A&T who sat down a lunch counter that sparked the whole lunch counter movement across the South. So, yeah, everyone had a role and they saw their role and they realized, more importantly, it wasn't about just me. It was about our entire community, our entire race. Right, Deborah. I think you, you, you hit on a couple key things. One of the things is they were started by young people. I mean, a lot of people don't realize that Martin Luther King was only 25 or 26 when he led the Montgomery Boys Boycott. Right. Okay, and, and quite honestly... The reason why he led it was because the leaders in the town felt they were going to get white uh, backlash and say, hey, this is an outsider, so he can afford to. Exactly. He can exactly. To. And then when I look at the people like Diane Nash, uh, John Lewis, mm-hmm. and all the Freedom Riders, which which my family is a part of those rides, in the, free, in the summer of freedom, all these individuals were under 25 years of old. Right. Absolutely. All of them were. You're absolutely right. You know, and even John Lewis, uh, in one of his final interviews, talked about how he was um, he was about to graduate from college, and he had gotten his uh, cap and gown. His parents had saved up money so they could wear his cap and gown, but he never got to wear it because on graduation day he was in jail. Mm-hmm. So when you think about personal sacrifices they made, right. you know, and so many were killed. Now it's never it has never been easier for us. And we are still not willing to go that extra mile. But I think part of this, Randy, is social media has given us a false sense of community. You know, mm-hmm. just because right. you have, you know, have 3,000 friends on Facebook, those are not really your friends. And you're not really talking to them about anything substantive, right? Right. So we, so we need to start having more, put the computers and phones, you know, to start having some more conversation. Did y'all have to watch the evening news at your house when you were growing up? Oh, every night. Every mm-hmm. night, the six I and the seven. <laughs> exactly. Every, the whole family sat in that living room and watched That's the right. news. That's right. That's and right. Then, you, then you had a conversation about it at the dinner table. Exactly. And you know what? We're, go ahead, Deborah. No, no. I was, no, you could, go ahead. I was just about to say, you know, when I look at, what I see now is to echo Edith's point is great to see the young people engage. But when I look at the lessons that were learned from the civil rights leaders of the past, when you did not have this distributed communication, there was much more limited communication and, you know, you were using telegrams and that type of stuff, how they were so organized and focused in their efforts where now we have so many entities uh, I get probably 25 different texts from 25 organizations a day about voting, um, mm-hmm. you know, and I just don't see a cohesive 
plan or co- cohesive action. Because um, when when SNCC, SNCC had an agenda, mm. and that agenda yep. aligned with the SCLC, mm. it you know it aligned with the NAACP and then some of the other local organizations, and mm. how they all coordinated, even though they were different entities, they worked together, and they is it, it was that was that seminal documentary Eyes on the Prize. And I think right mm-hmm. now we don't really have a good, clear definition of what the prize is. And we need to let our listeners know what SNCC stands for, because, again, this is a national podcast. Okay. So we want to make sure that, I know because we're talking about a lot of um, organizations that was, I guess, rooted in Atlanta. Right. Like the SDLC. But, you know, for that, I just want to make sure that our listeners know what these acronyms are for. Okay, Deborah, I'm gonna let oh. you. I'm gonna let you do that because you 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 lived it. Sure, sure, and you know, and I'm gonna do them in order. You know, the NAACP was National Association for Colored People, which it was started back in the uh, 1940s as a way of Black people getting access to education. That right. was the first big battle, and they sued um, various school systems, particular public school systems. Mm-hmm. Um, for black people to be able to go to the university in their own community where they were paying taxes. And then from that, the and again, to your point, Randy, it was young people who were members of the NAACP who felt it was going too slow. Those who were ministers organized the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Mm-hmm. And Ella Baker is the one who really conceptualized that organization because she felt that Black ministers were the most respected members of our community. What mm-hmm. your black minister told you, you would, you know, you would do. And ministers were very engaged all over the South, very engaged in organizing their communities and in their congregations. And again, young people felt that they were being too slow and they weren't <laughs> being radical enough. And Ella Baker said, okay, well, come on over here and let's start the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And so each one of them took on that next generation. You're right, you know, Dr. King was 25 when he started. At the time, you know, he only lived. How old was he when he was? um, I think it was, what, 34, 38, somebody 38 years old. Exactly. Exactly. So he had a a a very limited amount of time. But like every five years, a new group was coming out that would attract the young generation. And there is opportunity, certainly with Black Lives Matter, but they need to understand that the marching and the protests was only 1% of what the movement was about. The other 99% was sitting in meetings and coming up with your strategy and who's going to do what and how are we going to implement this and what's plan one, two, and three. Mm-hmm. You know, those are the things that we did first. And so, therefore, when you went out and did the protest, you could articulate specifically what we wanted to have happen. Right. As opposed we, to right now, you're just seeing people just marching. Exactly. Marching, yeah. and unfortunately, exactly. it leads into protests that become nonviolent. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So this is why... I, Podcasts like this, uh, Edith and Randy, are essential to get the information out to people, the good information, the kind of right. information they need to have, and to be inspired by your guests who are just all doing meaningful things to move the black community forward. This is this is your podcast. What you're doing now is more essential than ever. Right. We're in a period of crisis. So, so Deborah, I have a question for you. I mean, you're in the classroom now. You're You're seeing young people today. You're seeing the, uh, a new generation of activism. Um, what do you see right now with these young people? 
You know, I'm so glad you asked me that question. You know, my, the class I teach is around social change movements. I talk about 50 years of social change movements in the United States and the world. Oh, wow. And my first class every time is tell me all of the ways that politics impact your life. I've never gotten more than one or two answers. 90% of my students who are honors college students, the top 3% of academia at Georgia State, they say it doesn't have anything to do with me. Wow. They do not wow. see. And I said, well, you go to a state school. Why don't we start there? Right. <laughs> How did you get here? Did, did you take MARTA or did you go on a paid road that was paid for oh. <laughs> by government? Who do you call when your house is on fire? They don't make those connections. And I'm, you know, and this is why sitting down in a room having a conversation is so important now. We've got to bridge the gap. These young people do not take many um, local board of educations when they flipped the whole uh, No Child Left Behind um, initiative. They took civics out of the schools because they wanted to emphasize, you know, math and reading and science. Well, that's important. But, but knowing your rights as a citizen and your responsibility as a citizen is the most important job you have. Right. And we need to we need to bridge that gap because it's, it's a big gap. And this is why they can't articulate the protesters what they're what they really want. Wow. You know, they really don't know. That is so true because what I noticed, you know, a little bit about what you just spoke about, Deborah, but also going back to the social media piece because, you know, every time you know someone of some type of, I wouldn't say celebrity status, but somebody who's well-renowned dies, you know, usually when you go on anybody's social media site, especially a lot of the, the younger generation, if it's a celebrity, oh, they have so many posts about that celebrity. All these tributes. All these tributes. And when Congressman John Lewis died, when C.T. Vivian died, I said, I'm just going to, browse around on these same people's pages just to see if they did anything as it relates to, uh, you know, I guess, you know, honoring Congressman Lewis and C.T. Vivian or any other, you know, person in that space because the contributions they made is one of the reasons why we are all a little bit more comfortable today. And yep. not one, I didn't, I didn't see not one social media Instagram post honoring the civil rights icon. I but know. when a celebrity died, oh. that's all you see on their pages. Oh yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I said, we are really lost. I agree. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, and, uh, there, there's so many layers to that, the, mm-hmm. the reasons why, of course, um, but I think one of the big reasons is that in the past, we kept that stuff front and center. Like you said, we watched the evening news. Mm-hmm our churches, mm-hmm. our civic organizations, whether your mom and dad went to a sorority or fraternity mm-hmm. or, 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 or a local business organization mm-hmm. or your mom. I, I remember my grandmother used to have what they call club meetings where yep. they played cards right. <laughs> and they, mm-hmm. the ladies got together. Mm-hmm. Those, okay. those things were, were always discussed and they were in your face. Right. And now we, what's in our face now is social media, is social media, our cell phones, cell phones. And it's, celebrity gossip constantly yeah. or, or sports, yeah. or you know, sports. uh, you know, we, we, we are upset that this guy wore 
he did not wear the Kobe tennis shoes, right. you know, stuff like that. And, right. and, and it's just amazing how we, 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 we've lost that. And then also to what I've noticed is, and I hate to say this, desegregation was both plus a good thing and a bad thing. I agree. Absolutely. And I would, Absolutely. And I would say that what I've noticed is, particularly Deborah, you've probably seen it more than me. Uh, I haven't been in the classroom in a while. A lot of our young black kids grow up in these very multicultural educational environments. Exactly. And so what happens is they lose a sense of who they are. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I remember I grew up in the Grove Park community. Wow. Black History Month was every day. That's right. We exactly. Would, we would invite, uh, uh, we, I remember we invited Dr. Marion Shivers in, a female dentist, mm. to come talk to my class. She was wow. local. <laughs> I mean, you right. know, uh, or we would invite uh, Billy Aaron to come in. Wow. And we knew these people. And right. these, and, and, exactly. But now these kids, it's almost like they have enculturated other cultures and they don't, they don't show the same pride that we once did. Cause I came right. from the generation where black is beautiful and it still is beautiful. That's right. This is some good information we are giving to you. And I want you guys to take it in, digest it and execute it. However way you need to. All righty. Thank you again, Deborah. And until the next show, you all be blessed. Take care. Take care. You've been listening to the black resilience podcast. Real talk, real issues, real solutions. Until next time. Stay healthy, stay, healthy, stay, stay strong, strong, stay resilient, stay resilient, 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 Teach the children, teach the babies, teach the children.